This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2024 Lexus GX. You ever pick up a piece of gear that inspired you to up your game? My first full suspension mountain bike was like this. So plush and fun, it changed riding a bike from something I thought I'd never forget how to do to something I realized I wanted to do better. The all-new Lexus GX is an exceptionally capable rig that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. With available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, and multi-terrain select, the all-new GX is rugged on the outside, refined on the inside. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Or go to Lexus.com slash GX to learn more. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Last year, one of the most listened to episodes we brought to you was titled An Appalachian Trail Horror Story. The piece was produced by our friends at the Out Alive podcast, a show from Backpacker about people surviving what should be unsurvivable scenarios in wild places. We weren't surprised that it was a hit. You all have made it very clear to us that you really, really like a survival thriller. So, I have good news for you. Today, we're bringing you a brand new episode of Out Alive, which just launched another season. It's a tale about what happens when the emergency that you've trained for, even though you assumed it would never happen, actually happens. And this one involves a small plane and the wide open sea. More good news, Out Alive is growing. Host Luisa Albanese is creating three seasons this year. So if you subscribe to the show, that's a whole lot of survival coming your way. Please enjoy the kickoff episode of the latest season of Out Alive. My name is Sydney Uemoto. I'm from Kalikikua, Hawaii on the Big Island, uh, which is South Kona. And I work for Hawaiian Airlines as a 331st officer. My name is David McMahon, uh, born and raised on Oahu over in Kailua, Hawaii, and also at Hawaiian Airlines. Today, Sydney and David are pilots for a major airline, but back in 2016, they were making their way through advanced levels of flight training while working for a small inter-island air operation in Hawaii. David had just been recently certified to fly multi-engine aircraft and needed to log as much flight time as possible. So when he got an unexpected call to crew a short flight with another young pilot, he jumped on the opportunity. For me, this whole flight was a last-minute invite. Somebody dropped out, and I got a text the night before, oh, do you want to fly tomorrow? I also received a text message saying, hey, the original pilot dropped out. We are going to fly with Dave. And so I was like, oh, I don't even know who that is. And they're like, oh, no, don't worry, he's a cool guy. And I'm like, all right, so you're going to stick me with the noob. Not knowing he was part of the group message. (laughs) The plan was to fly from Oahu to uh, Big Island. And I was like, sure, I'll join in. Woke up a little late. It was super hectic for me. I didn't even get to eat breakfast. I think all I had was like a cup of yogurt. And I was rushing to the airport. I think I probably ate 
like half a breakfast plate just because we were rushing through the day. And I figured I'm going to go eat a good dinner because it's my dad's birthday. So I was just kind of saving my appetite for that. The plan was meet at Honolulu, have Sydney pick me up. We have never met each other. No, I don't even know what he looks like, but whatever, I'm down. He picked me up and then that drive over was just kind of small talk, getting to know each other. Excited to fly this aircraft. So we get to the airport. We meet the guys. They had just flown in. I, I remember first seeing the plane, and it was like straight out of Indiana Jones. Like, I've never seen them. They called it the Silver Bullet. It was all aluminum, no paint whatsoever, just shiny. Like, it looked cool. The plane was a Piper Apache PA-23150, a twin-engine, four-passenger propeller plane built in the 1950s. Sydney, who had a bit more experience than David, had flown this particular plane once before. The first time I saw it, I was thinking, oh, wow, this plane is super old. I was a little nervous. The gauges were, like, handwritten. But it was a cool plane. I remember having a dream, like, after that first flight, that the next time I took it, I, I like, crashed it. It was kind of weird. So... I was a little skeptical of taking this aircraft, but I thought, you know, nothing could go wrong because it was safe. It was taken to Oahu nothing happened. And yeah. Did a quick pre-flight. Everything checked out. Everything looked good. And yeah, we just took off. It was normal trade wind, sunny day in Oahu. Mileage wise, I believe it's about 150, 150 miles about there, give or take. As we're flying over with air traffic control, we get what you call flight following, where they just kind of, you follow them on radios, they look out for traffic, and you're always in contact with them. At this point, we're flying over the channel, kind of making our way south, and uh, we kind of saw some cloud layers, nothing too intense, but um, the way we were flying, it was basically, you want to stay out of the cloud. So we requested to jump up 2,000 feet to 5,500, I believe. And so we did that, we climbed up, and that's kind of when things started to get a little... Interesting. And we decided, because we only had one leg, we would do half the flight I fly, half the flight Dave's on the radio, and then the second half we swap. So I think that was about mid-flight where we decided to change roles. So she had transferred the controls to me. I remember the engines kind of started to rattle, but it wasn't like too intense to where we thought anything was going to happen. We just thought, okay, that's a little interesting. So we're like, hey, you know, the plane was running a little better down below. City made the idea. Uh, let's go back down. Maybe it'll run a little smoother. And I was like, yeah, good call. So we asked for the clearance, go down. We descended down. The engine seemed fine. So it seemed like it was back to normal. So everything was all good. There really wasn't any instruments. I mean, I could look over to the left and see, you know, Sydney had all of them in front of her. All I had in front of me was the um, the two propeller RPM gauges. So you see how fast they're spinning. And uh, I believe in that plane, normal was about 2,500 to 2,700 around that range. We're flying and all of a sudden I feel the plane just kind of like dip and turn to the right. And then since I had just finished training, it was identical to like an engine out practice maneuver that we do in in multi-engine training. And I was like, okay, something's up. Like immediately just natural reflexes, correct the aircraft. And then I look at my instrument straight ahead and I see the right engine was at like 1100. So it was basically just windmilling spinning in the wind. And then the left was still going at the normal, I believe it was around 27. That was kind of a, oh, you know, holy shit moment. 
for, for like me, I went to college for commercial aviation and went through all the courses for like aviation safety. And they always tell you like, oh, you're always going to think this is never going to happen to me. And so in that moment, I went back into that time where you're, you you know, you really think, oh, this would never happen to me. And it, it does. And there's definitely that deer in the headlights moment where you're shocked. And then it almost takes a little while to kind of kick yourself back into reality to be like, hey, this is actually happening. Yeah, your, your stomach just drops and you're thinking like, what am I going to do? We decided, let's tell air traffic control we have an engine issue. I just wanted them to know that something was up. And so that's when we took the time to run through, like, check out the manuals, try to see if we could get the first one to come back online. That's when the left one kind of did the same exact thing, where it just stopped. Everything kind of dipped to the left. And looking at the two gauges right in front of me, that left one now was basically doing the same, just windmilling. That was another stomach drop, like, okay, this is really bad. See, it got on the, the frequency on the radio and said, you know, declared the emergency. We had lost both engines. We're going down. There's no way we're going to make it. And I was trying to just focus on flying the aircraft because when you lose both engines, the plane doesn't fall out of the sky. It's just a glider at that point. But this plane, I think just because it was so old and heavy and it was gliding, but it was going down really fast. So we didn't really have much time. So we told them, you know, we're 25 miles northwest of Kona Airport. We're going down. We're not going to make it. I don't remember like looking out of the window, but I remember the ocean was just coming up quick. And at that point, we're at 3,500 feet, which is not that high, especially for an aircraft with no engine falling quick. As the uh, ocean started to get bigger and the reality started to sink in, I remember this aircraft only had one big door and it was on my side. And so I was flying the aircraft at the time. And I remember from training, they were telling me, if you're ever going to do an off airport landing, you know, get the door open before you land because you don't want to get stuck inside. So I told Sid, I was like, okay, Sid, um, you got to land this aircraft. I'm going to open up the door so we can get out. I mean, you can't practice. Like you, you, we, we do simulator stuff. You can't practice ditching an aircraft. They can teach you. And so, you know, like textbook wise, how to ditch it. But I was just super nervous and And I think without Dave, I I wouldn't have remembered to open the door. The term ditching is the aviation term for a controlled emergency landing on water. I gave them like one last call. It was like maybe out of 500 feet. I just said who we were, we're going down now. And then I took the controls from Dave. Like under 500 feet, like just happened so fast that it, it was just a lot going on. Successfully landing a plane on the water is a feat of expert piloting. Sydney needed to keep the wings of the plane level. Too steep an angle can cause an impact that would flip the plane over. She also needed to keep the plane parallel to the waves to prevent the waves from hitting the wings, which combined with the aircraft's speed could rotate the plane and tear it to pieces. I was just visualizing a runway and um, I just had both hands on the yoke, which is not normal. You normally have one on the on the thrust levers, right? Because you want to kill the power. It was a big, not like a boom. There was a noise that I distinctly remember. And then you just see the water splash up onto the windshield. But it was pretty hard because you just stop all of a sudden. It's like a like hitting a wall. You know, we're going probably 80 miles an hour, maybe. And then all of a sudden just stops. And luckily, we didn't roll, twist, flip or anything. It was like... Sydney did the best landing you could have asked for. I mean, it was honestly perfect. My front upper part of my body just hit the glare shield. And so I ended up like fracturing my nose and like bleeding. Yeah, this plane was so old, it only had the lap restraints. So there's nothing to hold your shoulders in. Everything that wasn't buckled down, even us, because we were buckled down, just slammed forward. 
Our headsets flew off our heads. Everything just like flying forward towards us from like the back seat. I remember just like looking down and like unbuckling my seatbelt and like I was doing it in slow motion, but it was happening fast. And I looked over and made sure Sydney wasn't passed out either. She was all dazed, obviously, as well. By the time we kind of came back, the, the water was halfway up the, the, the windshield. And since the door was open, water was flooding in the, the plane already. You know, it was probably up to the seats. Um, and it was just sinking really fast. So it was kind of like a real rush to get out for me. I think I stood up right away, kind of stepped out onto the wing. There was like a tiny window right next to me. And with the impact, my shirt got caught in one of the screws. When I was trying to get out, I was being like held back. And so I noticed, so I had to like rip my shirt out. And then I stood up. But I mean, it's short. So when you stand up, you stand up kind of like your head's down, you're like, crouched down and that's when I realized I was bleeding and I was telling Dave I was like I can't go in the water he's like well you can't stay in the plane <laughs> I was like yeah but there's sharks in the water and he's like no 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 I'll, I'll help you like, I remember things in slow motion I know it was happening faster water was still just flooding in the the, the plane was starting to look almost like Titanic at this point and we had to get out quick. And I remember telling Sid before she got out and I like, grabbed the life vest grab the life vest well the life vests which were buckled down somewhere weren't there and so she looks around a little more and she finds them and that was like a huge relief so she has be one you know we put them on and the plane really went down quick there was no debris there was nothing floating we were just fortunate enough to get those life vests for commercial airliners the federal aviation administration requires planes to be designed so that the passengers and crew can evacuate within 90 seconds But ditching any sized plane usually involves significant damage to the aircraft, causing holes that compromise the integrity of the compartments. If that happens, the aircraft will sink fairly quickly. You know, we're both in a panic state because we just crashed an airplane. Um, And the seas, the conditions were pretty rough. That's one of the roughest channels in Hawaii. And luckily it was a smaller day, although the seas were probably like six to eight feet with whitewash crumbling. So it was still significantly big waves. I grew up in the water surfing, swimming. I was on the swim team when I was young, so I'm a pretty strong swimmer and I've been in the ocean a lot. Sid was definitely in a in a more panic state. And so I was like, in my head, okay, we had just landed in the ocean. We survived this plane crash. I'm not gonna say I was like on a high, but I was like, wow, we just did this. We're all good. You know, they know we crashed. We're good. And I remember Sid, like every, <laughs> I think like every 30 seconds or every minute, she's like, where's the Coast Guard? Where's the Coast Guard? Where's the Coast Guard? And I'm like, well, they're coming, they're coming. We just got to wait. I was just trying to change the the conversation, just small talk, because we had just met. I definitely thought about family and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. I remember actually telling Sydney, you know, that was the time I decided. I was like, oh, I'm going to marry my girlfriend. It was Sid's dad's birthday that night. I thought about what my mom was doing. I was thinking, oh, you know, they're at, they're at dinner. And like they're eating and they're probably so worried about me. And it was like a huge birthday party too. It was his 60th for like Japanese culture for a man. It's kind of a bigger party. And so I definitely thought about that. And then just kind of after you get through those thoughts, then you kind of get into survival mode. And we didn't have a, a life raft or anything. We just had those life vests. I think these vests were like the original vests in the aircraft because mine broke right away. Where that CO2 cartridge, if you're ever familiar with watching airline videos and how they tell you to inflate, well, that just fell off. The glue separated. There wasn't a tear or anything, but it was like a perfect hole, but it just fell off. So all my air, you know, 
escaped. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm just treading water now. But I kept the vest with me because I wanted it, you know, it's bright yellow. I wanted it for signaling. So I kind of just had it wrapped around me with the strap that's along it and then just continued floating for a bit. Despite the severity of their circumstances, David and Sydney had reasons to be hopeful. They had sent out an emergency call just seconds before crashing that gave the Coast Guard their coordinates. They were also able to see the volcanic peaks of the Big Island, which allowed them to orient themselves in the choppy waves. We knew in general area where the airport was that we were heading to, and that's most likely where the planes were going to come from. It wasn't until about an hour and a half later, I think, until we finally started to see search aircraft. And I remember seeing a a Navy aircraft, not close to us at that point, but it was just kind of a relief, okay, they're finally out here looking for us. Shortly after that, we saw a C-130, which is a Coast Guard, come by, and then we saw a helicopter, and all, like I said, kind of in the distance, nothing too close yet. They were just kind of doing their search grid patterns. One of the bigger, I think it was a the P3 that flew right over us, directly over us. And I remember just getting my my yellow life vest, treading water, it was empty, but I was waving it over my head back and forth, slapping it on the water. Sid was splashing water, just trying to get the attention, and it just flew right directly over us and kept going. And, you know, it was just like, shit. As time progressed, we had a couple more flyovers, same thing. They flew over us probably eight to 10 times. And by like approaching that 10th time, it was like, okay, they're not going to see us. You know, there's certain moments throughout this story that like really stick out to me. And one of the main ones is the look of Dave's eyes when the sun was setting. That's when I saw his mentality change. It's like a picture in my head because he's facing me the orange from the sunset glows on his face and he has these piercing blue eyes and I could just see it in his eyes. So at that point, when I finally realized they're not going to see us, I was like, we got to save ourselves or at least try to do whatever we can. We'll be right back. Brought to you by Lexus. There are things you can own that do much more than their stated functions. Things like a professional-grade kitchen range, or an aerodynamic carbon fiber bike. The truth is, exceptional things inspire you to do exceptional things. They push you to reach higher, to go farther. To this select list, we add the all-new Lexus GX. You don't buy it just for the life you have, but also for the life you want to have. Its exceptional capability will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed making plans that were once outside your scope. But as much as the GX challenges you, it also spoils you. Its intuitive technology and luxurious features mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. David and Sydney were drifting in the ocean in fading sunlight some 25 miles from land in water that was about 5,000 feet deep. Since ditching their airplane, they'd seen nearly a dozen search and rescue aircraft fly by without seeing them. They decided that swimming towards the big island of Hawaii was their only chance. 
In my head, I'm thinking of the Hawaiian Islands. We're in the middle. And from the way the wind's going and the current's going, it's flowing south. And south of where we were was absolutely nothing. Just open ocean for thousands of miles. So it's like, if they don't find us here, they're not going to find us in the middle of the ocean. Um, and I remember saying, let's start swimming towards the, the island. And we just slowly swam. I was treading water. She had the life vest, which is super restrictive to swim with. And I still had my life vest trailing with me and it was starting to get dark. But luckily, as the big island set up, the closer we swam, you know, we were swimming for a couple hours, not fast, just slowly making our way. The closer you get, the calmer it gets because the big island kind of sticks out and blocks all that that wind chop and that, that current and all that. So it started to like ease off in the calmer water. So it was a lot easier to kind of swim. And whereas when we first crashed, it was pretty rough. David and Sydney swam into the night. The sky was clear and the moon allowed them to see each other and dim reflections on the water. But after nearly eight hours of swimming without the aid of a life vest, David reached a point of total exhaustion. Finally, I, I said, Sid, we, I just have to rest my head on you because she still had her, her vest. So I was able to just lay on her. And we just kind of floated there for a bit. I just had my goal set on reaching the island at that point. I didn't want to be like, oh, you can't rest. So I was like, you know, if you want, you can just kind of hold on to me because I kind of don't want to stop. I kind of want to keep this momentum going. And I think that's how we decided to kind of link together. She was swimming face down forward like freestyle. And then I was on my back with her legs over my shoulders. So I was facing up, she was facing down and we swam as one. So she was like freestyle swimming and I was kicking in the back. My my abdominal area was cramping so hard just from kicking and trying to keep my head up that I couldn't even control my legs anymore. It was a long time that he didn't have a life vest and like that takes a toll. So I knew he was tired. But it was to a point where I couldn't even keep my head above water doing that on my back. And so that was probably a lower point for me than even when the sun set is because I thought I was going to drown and I couldn't keep my head above water. And I remember her saying, hey, let me see your life vest. This life vest had two compartments and I only had done one when we went in. So she tugs and it just inflates. I'm like, oh my God, like a new life, you know, just like my head was above water now. Like she literally saved me at that point just by looking at the vest, something I never even thought of doing. Even with a semi-functional life vest, David still needed to hold on to Sydney, so they continued swimming as a unit, with her paddling with her arms while David kicked. Then they encountered their next challenge. As she was swimming forward, we started swimming through jellyfish, and it's nighttime, you can't see them, and she's in front, so she's getting all of it. You know, I, I think I barely got stung because I'm right behind her. And the jellyfish we swam through are the ones I'm very familiar with where I surf all the time over in Kailua and on the east side of Oahu. Luckily, they're not super poisonous or bad, but you know, they're like bee stings. They do really, really hurt. Sydney took the brunt of the jellyfish stings as she plowed them forward through the dark water. It was painful, but manageable. Then she felt a very different kind of sting and the pain quickly turned to agony. This last sting was just way different. It was so painful. I like lifted my arm out of the water and it wasn't blue like the other stings. It was white, the tentacles. And so I just remember like trying to peel it off but there were like hooks in my skin. And so the tentacle was breaking off in pieces. So I couldn't get like a full clean tentacle off like the previous jellyfish. The fire started in my arm and I could kind of just feel it. It was like poison going through your veins. I just felt it like going through like my chest area and then it went to like my abdominals and I could just feel this like whatever stung me, I like the venom. I could just feel it going through my body. 
By the time I kind of got around to try to help her, she was already starting to lose consciousness. And she rolled over on her back. Luckily, she had her vest still inflated. And she was breathing, but like real fast, almost like convulsing in a way. And that was extremely scary. We're middle of the night, middle of the ocean. I'm thinking she's going to die. I'm trying to just like, Sydney, 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 not responding. At that moment is when I was making my peace with God. You know, like, if this is it, I'm okay with it. And at that point, I also thought that that was it for me. That that was where I was, I was going to die. I don't know what to do. I just keep trying to get her attention, but nothing. And, you know, I, that sense of time, I really don't know how long that lasted. That pain was like the most excruciating pain I've ever felt. And then just like after a little bit resting or whatever, just like kind of getting through it, pushing through it, breathing through it. The breathing started to slow down again and then she slowly started to come back. And then that's like how, you know, we started up again and I I was like, yeah, we got to get out of here. This was like a new wave of energy boost. It was like, get me the fuck out of here. We rejoined together, and I remember at that point, swimming as one, just like machine swimming, not stopping. Like, we'd take a break maybe every once in a while, but barely, and we just kept going, and Sydney was just leading the charge. I was like, Dave, you can do whatever you want back there, but, like, I'm going to, like, just keep keep it going. Like, I'm just going to keep keep paddling. Like, if you need to rest, you can rest. I don't mind. If you want to kick, you can kick, but I'm going to keep us moving. Back to our life vest. Mine was completely broken, then she fixed it. And then hers, while it kept air, it was slowly leaking. Those red tubes you see they say to blow into, we were both having to breathe into our vest almost every exhale. Breathe in, blow into your life vest. Breathe in, you know, that was it. But yeah, we, we swam all night. I remember aiming for this red beacon. You know, at night you can't tell how much progress you're making, if you're making any at all. As the twilight kind of came up, that's kind of another wave of energy that we had because you could start to see land. You could like see roads, you could see like houses. We were significantly further in. And that was like a, a boost of like, whoa, we can actually save ourselves. I remember it actually dumping rain, which was super nice. We didn't have water this whole time. And we tried to roll over and open our mouths and have the, you know, the rain it doesn't work. No, like <laughs> we're just water drops hitting your tongue and just like immediately like like drying up you know it didn't help at all but it was nice because it wasn't hot and, and and the rain felt good because i'm so familiar with the kona flights i was kind of keeping track of time with the departures of the hawaiian aircraft so i was like okay it's like probably like 6 30 okay it's probably like seven and i remember it's probably around 10 we did see a tour helicopter and they never fly out in the ocean it was kind of in a distance close enough to where we could tell they were they're looking for us. But it's basically, since we didn't have life rafts or anything, you're looking for two coconuts floating in the water. The size of our heads are about the size of a coconut. As the sun rose, I remember, instead of swimming as one like we had done overnight, we kind of broke off and just swam side by side. Our eyes were just looking straight down in this crystal clear, beautiful, deep ocean blue probably like 10 feet underwater. I just saw this dark shadow and I immediately knew it was a shark. And I didn't say anything. You know, I didn't want to alarm Sid, but she could tell right away from my eyes that I saw something. Dave kind of tried to reassure me, like, oh, he was on guard. Like he was, you know, ready to try and fight it if it decided to, you know, try to harm us. And I just remember, I didn't want to say it was a shark and panic. I was just like, oh, we got a friend, you know, and she, she knew right away. I was thinking, no way we're gonna get through a plane crash a night in the ocean and jellyfish just for it to end with like us being attacked by a shark. My thought process is, I'm gonna keep an eye on this thing. Let's just act like it's not there and just keep swimming. It kind of just kept 
a little distance and never really came too close. But, I mean, we knew he was there. Other than the fin not breaking the surface, it just circled us like it does <laughs> in all the movies. It, it literally circled us for about a half hour. And as it circled us, I kind of just followed it like feet towards it, swimming forward too, but then always facing it. Because if it ever came close, I was ready to just either kick it or, you know, punch it or do whatever I could. And then it just disappeared. And oddly enough, once it disappeared, it disappeared out of my mind too. And then about 20 minutes later, it was like deja vu, except Sydney saw it first this time. Seeing it with my own eyes, that was different than like seeing it through Dave, where I knew Dave saw something, but I hadn't seen anything yet. And that was a shock of like, okay, this is real. You know, another one of those like sinking moments in, in my stomach, because here it is, maybe it never left and now it's back and now it's just waiting for its opportunity to come, you know, do whatever it wanted. And we just kept swimming and I, I faced it and the thing just kept circling us. It wasn't a massive shark, but it was big enough to where it was scary. It was probably six feet. It just swam in circles and then just disappeared again. So we're swimming together. We're trying to gauge our distance from land. And I remember hearing the Coast Guard helicopter and they have a distinct sound. I remember hearing it and didn't think much of it. You could kind of see it out in the distance, but you could see it like going out to where we were the day before. Well, I wasn't too hopeful to be honest. It just kept going out to the search grid. So I was like, okay, they definitely don't know where, you know, we decided to swim, but we're gonna save ourselves. And it wasn't much longer after that, that same helicopter, I could hear it. And for some reason, this was the only time in this entire ordeal in my head, like, this is it. This, no, this is the one, like, I know this, this is, the one that's going to save us. I know it. I remember saying that to Sydney. And in my head, I was like, you know, we, we've had this before where we, you know, we were let down, I guess, from an aircraft that was so close. I was like, Go, you do whatever you want. I'm going to keep swimming. So I didn't quite believe him when he told me that. For some reason, I just knew. And I turned around and it was still far away. You could see a little dot, but that dot was like coming directly towards us. And I didn't see that until I turned around but I knew before I even turned around that that was it and it just kept getting closer and closer and closer and then it came right above us and then it just did a circle and immediately you know it was like every kind of emotion outpour at once you know we were happy we were crying we might even be like wailing I don't know it's just like a ball of emotion you know it was elated we could finally relax and we just I remember that was just the most beautiful thing I ever saw it was just this orange helicopter circling us in the sky. <laughs> I remember them sliding like the open, the, the back door open and then just kind of having someone wave to us like to let us know that they do see us. Then it was like out of the movies. Is there any of the rescue shows you see? It was it was pretty awesome. They, you know, they get real low. The water, it's all churned up from the helicopter wash. And then the guy jumps in fully gear with, you know, wetsuit and, and mask and fins. And I remember he came up to us and I just gave him a big high five and then they send the basket down, they put Sydney in. I remember just laying on my back, watching it all. Just, I'm just so relieved, not, not even a care in the world anymore. And then after he puts her in the basket, he comes up and kind of helps me swim. And it's amazing, like the strength I felt just from just holding on to him was like insane. Cause it was almost like I was like standing on land or something. From the diver's point of view, when they grabbed us, he said he could just feel our body just like not give out, but just like that. All that stress and the adrenaline in us, he felt it just like released. You know, just like, wow, okay, we are safe. And they bring us into the helicopter and I was just so thirsty and 
remember the guys gave us one of their hydro flasks. Sydney drank a little of it. And I just remember just chugging it, like just finishing it. They gave us like their lunch boxes. I remember specifically the banana being in there. And I tried to eat it and my mouth was so raw from the salt water that I couldn't eat or chew. It just hurt. The helicopter started taking us to Kona Airport. It lands. They have like fire and ambulance meet us. They have us wrapped in those foiled blankets. And then they walk us to the stretchers. They put us into the ambulance. And at that moment was when the first time I saw my parents. I'm like laying in the stretcher with the neck brace on. And my mom and dad like came over me and and they were just so happy to see me. And and I told them, I'm so sorry, dad. I'm so sorry. I miss like happy birthday. And and they were just like filled with like joy and relief. After their rescue, Sydney learned just how miraculous it was that they had been spotted in the water. I had the opportunity to actually meet the Coast Guard person who actually saw us. A plane had called in debris and because they were the closest to the location, they said, okay, you know what, we'll go, we'll go check it out. And so what they did was they flew to the location, they didn't see anything on the outbound. And then on the inbound, this girl, she told me what she had said was, oh, I didn't know you guys had crab pots in Hawaii. And one of the guys I was with her was like, we don't have crab pots. What are you talking about? And she's like, right there, the crab pot. And, and it ended up being us. She like had just came to Hawaii's Coast Guard from Maine. So she was brand new. This was like her first search and rescue mission out here. Both David and Sydney had grown up in the Hawaiian Islands, and as they connected with their families and friends about their ordeal, they realized that their communities had mobilized multiple rescue efforts in addition to the operation carried out by the Coast Guard. My brother flew over to Kona. He rented a fishing boat, came out trying to look for us. The Navy P-3 that Dave saw, uh, that was also a family friend of mine. I had friends, one in the Coast Guard, one in the Navy, who facilitated getting more people involved. My uncle works for Blue Hawaiian Helicopter Tours and like my my family that like, they just rented a helicopter and like was trying to search for us. There's so many side stories of everybody doing what they can to find us. Today, Sydney and David are both still pilots now working for Hawaiian Airlines. In the years since their accident, they've met aviation professionals who were involved in their rescue. Maybe a year after our, our accident, I was getting checked out to become a captain to fly the line on my own. And the check airman that was giving me my check ride was one of the guys that saw called us in, called the debris in. He checked me out, same kind of situation with the same guy. And so that was kind of a, a really cool experience flying with a guy who literally saved your life. We asked them how their plane crash had affected them both in their work in the air and their lives on the ground. I think it's definitely made me a better pilot. I feel really safe when I fly, but just because of what happened, I still have my own little things that I bring with me. Like I have a reflective mirror. I fly with like an ELT still, and the plane has its own, you know. An ELT is an emergency location transmitter. With an airliner going down, I'm sure it wouldn't be as difficult to find. And so, I mean, just for my personal comfort, I I end up taking my own little stuff with me. I kind of look at life a little different now to where it's like, you know, just go out and live it a little more. I did before. Like, I, I love to travel. I love to do everything. I always have. But now it, it just kind of sinks in a little more like, you know, something really can happen and change like that. The importance of positivity and the importance of other people, because 
you know, without each other, we wouldn't have made it through this situation. There's no way. If I was by myself, there's no way. That was the first episode of the new season of the Out Alive podcast. The episode was produced and written by Louisa Albanese along with Emma Vaid. Editing by me, Michael Roberts. Sound design and scoring by Jason Patton. Out Alive and the Outside Podcast are made possible by the members of Outside Plus. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus.